Good morning. Very warm welcome to the Institute for Government's Conference on Standards in Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute. Standards in Government have been a big topic in our work this year. We've been looking at the Ministerial Code, at transparency around lobbying, the public appointments process, and an awful lot more, as you will have seen. I'm really happy today to begin this conference with welcoming Lord Evans of Weardale, Chair of the Committee on Standards on Public Life. He's going to kick off the day. He was appointed Chair of the Committee in October 2018, having served in the security services for 33 years. Before that, six as Director General. He was appointed a crossbench peer in 2014. And the committee, which he heads, was set up by John Major in 1994 to examine current concerns about standards of, contact, uh, of conduct of all holders of public office. And over the years, it's looked into all kinds of questions about those standards, including local government, electoral funding, and lots more. This week, the, the committee published a big new report, which he's going to talk to us about, Upholding Standards in Public Life, and it set out 34 recommendations for how those standards could be improved. We're going to hear more from him uh, in, a, in a moment, but first some very brief housekeeping notes. We're going to be live tweeting during this event from IFG events using the hashtag IFG standards. Please send in your questions at any time during the event. That could be now. And after Jonathan Evans has spoken, we'll have a discussion and then take your questions. I'm going to say without with, with um, over to you, uh, John, Jonathan Evans, but I just uh, would like to uh, thank everyone at the IFG for bringing together this, what is turning out to be an exceptionally well-timed conference. Lord Evans. Good morning, and thank you for the uh, invitation to address this Institute for Government conference today. Uh, my speech will concentrate on arrangements for ethical standards in government, which are the focus of our latest report, Upholding Standards in Public Life. But first, I should turn to matters in the House of Commons yesterday. My committee has taken a long-standing interest in arrangements in the Commons. It was on our recommendation that the MP's Code of Conduct and the role of the Commissioner were both established. In my view, yesterday's vote on the report of the Common Standards Committee was a very serious and damaging moment for Parliament and for public standards in this country. It cannot be right that MPs should reject after one short debate, the conclusions of the Independent Commissioner for Standards and the House of Commons Committee on Standards, conclusions that arose from an investigation lasting two years. It cannot be right to propose an overhaul of the entire regulatory system in order to postpone or prevent sanctions in a very serious case of paid lobbying by an MP. It cannot be right that this was accompanied by repeated attempts to question the integrity of the Commissioner for Standards herself, who is working within the system that the House of Commons agreed in 2010. And it cannot be right to propose that the standard system in the House of Commons should be reviewed by a select committee chaired by a member of the ruling party and with a majority of members from that same party. This extraordinary proposal is deeply at odds with the best traditions of British democracy. The political system in this country does not belong to one party or even to one government. It is a common good that we have all inherited from our forebears and that we all have a responsibility to preserve and to improve. The seven principles of public life that all governments have espoused for over 25 years require that ministers and MPs should show leadership in upholding ethical standards in public life. I find it hard to see how yesterday's actions in any way meet that test. There is a critical need for independence in the regulation of ethical standards in both government and parliament. And the importance of independent regulation was a clear message in the evidence from our latest review, to which I will now turn. My committee's role, first set out by Sir John Major, is to advise on the arrangements for upholding ethical standards as what was called an ethical workshop for running repairs. There exists today a complex tapestry of commissioners and committees, rules and regulators, policies and processes to regulate and enforce ethical standards. Our role is to assess how well these structures are working and to make recommendations for reform 
when improvements are needed. That's the spirit in which our latest review was launched in September 2020. After the 25th anniversary of Lord Nolan's first report, the committee decided it wanted to look across public life at how standards regulation is working in practice and to examine how successfully our current institutional architecture has followed Nolan's original blueprint. We focused our attention on standards arrangements in government, as these were the areas indicated as in most urgent need of reform in our evidence-gathering process. Very early on in our work, we recognised that a number of social and political trends were contributing to an increasing pressure on ethical standards, even before the corona pandemic, uh, coronavirus pandemic hit. First, due to significant and positive improvements in transparency, as well as the rise of social media, standards accusations and allegations can cause political trouble before the relevant regulator can assess the issues. Timeliness in, is critical in effective standards regulation, but no regulator today can beat the pace of the news cycle and social media. This means public debate on ethical standards can be frantic, highly charged and often misinformed. Second, like many of our international partners, we live in an age of increased political polarisation. Ethical standards have always been used as a party political weapon. But in times of greater consensus, political leaders may have been more willing to step above the fray and to do the right thing on ethical standards, even occasionally at some political cost. Today, in a more divided world, party political gain is seen too often as a higher priority than adhering to the rules and norms that uphold ethical standards in British public life. Third, and to the detriment of our entire political life and public life, we have seen a significant increase in intimidation and a severe coarsening of public debate. Today there is an increasing tendency to see those on the other side not as opponents but as enemies, and there has been a huge increase in abuse and intimidation directed at those in public roles, both elected and appointed. The deterioration in the tone of our political discourse impacts ethical standards more broadly by preventing a fair and reasoned assessment of the issues at hand and by deterring many from entering the public debate. It was in the light of these trends that the committee assessed whether the seven principles of public life remained fit for purpose. Selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty and leadership these principles articulate the public's expectations of the values all public office old holders should maintain. It was clear in the evidence submitted to the committee over the course of this review that there was something missing around the issue of respect. Following the uncovering of a shocking level of bullying, harassment, including sexual harassment in Parliament, contributors felt that our set of ethical standards should include a greater focus on behaviour and the way in which public figures undertake their interpersonal relationships. We believe that respect is implicit in the idea of leadership, acting in a way that sets a positive example for others. But reflecting the evidence received, we have decided to make the reference to respect explicit and have amended the descriptor of the leadership principle accordingly. So do the seven principles actually matter today? We took evidence from senior civil servants, former officials, business leaders, standards regulators, academics, anti-corruption experts, members of the public and politicians, and we found that standards really do continue to matter for our democracy, for our economy, and for our standing in the world. Ethical standards are the shared values that underpin the legitimacy of democratic governance. In our political system, an electoral mandate does not confer unlimited and untrammeled power on those in office. Our system of checks and balances means power must be exercised for the public good and not for private gain. When ethical standards drop, public consent and confidence will weaken, undermining the bonds of trust that keep our politics and governance functioning. Too often we hear that standards don't matter as stories of sleaze produce little movement in the polls and therefore 
clearly the public is thought not to care. But our polling reflects a wider set of voter priorities of which ethical standards are one part. When we polled the British public on ethical standards alone, we found large majorities believe that ethical standards are important for our democracy. To believe ethical standards are redundant is to risk a long-term decline in the very foundations of trust that sustain British democratic life. Business leaders and former senior officials were clear that ethical standards are also important for our economic prosperity. The predictability of political decision-making, the fairness of regulatory decision-making and low levels of corruption all make Britain a more attractive place to do business for foreign investors and our own companies. And we were told that our soft power abroad depends on our country's reputation for integrity at home. The UK can act against corruption internationally by leading by example at home. High ethical standards support our foreign policy goals. To realise these benefits, we must have high standards at home, yet it remains true that public perceptions of the ethical standards of ministers and MPs remains poor. This is not a new development. The committee's biennial surveys from 2004 to 2012 found consistently low scores. And of course, there has never been a golden age of ethical standards. Debate on cronyism and sleaze dominate the media headlines from time to time, and no administration has ever been seen as sleaze-free. A degree of scepticism towards the political class is probably healthy in democracy, and public perceptions are not always a fair reflection of the reality. Perhaps a better interpretation of ethical standards in public life, as voiced to us by some contributors, is that the focus on ethical standards tends to go in cycles. A scandal erupts, public concern increases, regulatory arrangements are then reviewed and office holders reassess their conduct. After a period of time, complacency sets in and the cycle repeats. The events of yesterday confirm our view that we are at the point in the cycle where it's time to look again and to reassess. It's time to re-establish our commitment to credible, independent regulation of the ethical standards of public office holders. My earlier comments refer. In evidence gathering for this report, we have seen a number of issues that have prompted concern. We identified four of these as in most urgent need of reform. First, a lack of independence in the regulation of the ministerial code. Second, an inability to enforce the business appointment rules and issue sanctions for breaches. Third, untoward pressure on the regulation of public appointments. And finally, insufficient transparency around lobbying. <clears throat> our diagnosis is that standards arrangements are too dependent on convention, that our regulators lack sufficient independence, and that the government must take its own ethics obligations more professionally and more seriously. Our prescription is for stronger rules, more independence for standards regulators, and a better compliance culture in government. That the British Constitution operates largely on the basis of conventions and norms is well-worn ground. Lord Peter Hennessy described our constitutional arrangements as a state of mind rather than any system of structures or rules. The functioning of that system was dependent on the so-called good chap theory, that we ultimately trust our political leaders to do the right thing. Of course, in regulatory terms, conventions are by definition not binding. And so when it comes to ethical standards, what one person may call governance by convention, others might call self-regulation. And we know in politics, business, and many other walks of life that self-regulation no longer appears to command as much public trust as perhaps it once did. And when governance by convention comes under stress, either through external events or a change in social and political values, those conventions are often <coughs> too easily ignored. For example, during the UK's exit from the European Union, there were many tests and challenges to the expectations and norms that have been upheld by the British democratic process in recent years. Established practice on ethics and propriety has not been immune to these shifting attitudes. A more resilient standard system leads, leads 
needs less dependence on convention and stronger, clearer rules and sanctions, and this is what we are recommending. We believe that the Ministerial Code should be rewritten solely as a code of conduct for ethical standards, with its provisions on everyday cabinet governance placed elsewhere. It should detail possible sanctions for breaches, including apologies, fines, or ultimately resignation. We believe that the business appointment rules should be broadened and that the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments should be able to institute a lobbying ban of up to five years in exceptional circumstances and that the rules should be enforced through legal arrangements. Possible sanctions should include taking out an injunction against a banned business appointment or the recouping of pensions or severance payments. The Commissioner for Public Appointments should be given greater powers to prevent the packing of assessment panels and there should be stronger accountability and deterrence to appointing candidates deemed unappointable by assessment panels. And rules on transparency around lobbying need to be overhauled. The Cabinet Office should implement a more centralised and more frequent programme of publication with broader categories of published information and stricter criteria on descriptions of meetings. On the issue of independence, we believe too many standards regulators in government lack the necessary independence to do their work effectively. Standards regulators in government are in a unique position in the wider regulatory landscape. Unlike other regulators, they regulate the behaviour of those in power and so have a much closer and more complex relationship with those that they are regulating. Indeed, for most standards regulators in government, the regulated appoint the regulator the regulated appoints the regulator, issues the code the regulator upholds, can abolish or amend the powers of the regulator, can fire the regulator, and often controls the publication of the regulator's findings and the issuing of any sanctions. Of course, we recognise that the unique circumstances of a democratic mandate and political office mean that it's not possible to afford standards regulators the same degree of independence as other regulators of the private or public sectors. But regulators need greater independence and protection from government interference. They should be empowered to speak out when necessary. We believe there are appropriate and proportionate ways that independence of standards rec regulators can be strengthened, and we therefore recommend a basis in primary legislation for three standards regulators who currently lack such a footing the Commissioner for Public Appointments, the Independent Advisor on Ministerial Interests, and the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. A statutory basis for the House of Lords Appointments Commission should be considered as part of a broader Lords reform agenda. Greater independence in the appointments process for standards regulators, we believe that assessment panels should for such appointments should have a majority of independent members. And we recommend that the independent advisor and ACABA no longer operate on a largely advisory basis and that they are granted independent powers within their remits. We believe the independent advisor should have the ability to initiate their own investigations and have the authority to declare a breach of the ministerial code. And we believe that ACABA should be reconstituted as a regulator whose rulings are directly binding on applicants. Finally, we identified a lack of professionalism in the way government manages its ethics obligations. For example, when it comes to transparency returns, government data releases are often late, descriptions of meetings are vague and ambiguous, and data is formatted in such a way that it is extremely difficult to compare departmental releases with the register of consultant lobbyists. And when it comes to the management of the business appointment rules in government departments, the quality of advice and oversight appears to vary hugely with little central coordination. We therefore agree with the recommendation of the Boardman report that government needs a more serious and professional compliance system in line with best practice in the private sector. Complying with its own ethics rules is not a nice to have for government. It's an essential obligation. 
the government should no longer take an advisory and light-touch approach to its own rules and codes. Government should instead implement a thorough and wide-ranging compliance system and compliance culture. Concluding, we did hear and consider more radical options. Some contributors uh, from whom we took evidence called for a single ethics commission combining the existing standards regulators into one central body. Such a commission would certainly signal a change in approach to the public. However, we also heard arguments that it would amass too much power, uh, unelected power, over the affairs of government. We therefore believe improving education and communication on the roles and remits of existing bodies is a better solution to the issue of complexity. In that sense, this is not a radical report. We believe our recommendations are a common sense set of reforms that taken together would lead to a significant improvement in the upholding of ethical standards in government. Many of our recommendations can be taken forward immediately by government should they wish to do so. We should not lose sight of the long history of standards innovation in this country. We have had episodes of so-called sleaze and scandal before. What matters is that that opportunity for reform should be grasped in order to maintain or rebuild public confidence in the integrity of public life. Though yesterday's events may represent a serious blow to such confidence, we hope that the government will recognise that this is a serious moment, take our call to action seriously and implement the recommendations of this report. Thank you. Lord Evans, thank you very much indeed. Just a reminder, we're taking questions and live tweeting throughout all this. There's a great lot of questions coming in. Um, thank you very much indeed. Do keep them coming. Thank you very much for that um, wide-ranging account of your report uh, updated for yesterday's events. And perhaps we can start there, though I've got a lot of questions as well about the picture that you're painting of Britain at, at what um, seems to be a kind of turning point. But let's start with yesterday. Uh, and you described it as a blow to confidence. You said half a dozen times uh, it cannot be right, uh, the, the, the measures that the government has taken. How damaging is it, do you think, to Britain's reputation and her standards? I think it is damaging. I think if you only need to look at the front pages of today's papers to see that people uh, recognize this as an attack on standards. Uh, and it's not been presented in that way, but I think you'd have to be extremely naive to imagine that this was not a politically motivated set of decisions. Uh, and on standards issues, independence is key. Nobody should be able to make uh, their, their judgments on their own case. And this is a, a retrograde step in that regard. And I think it is vitally important that we should have a cross-party and independent way of maintaining public standards, which is in everybody's interests. The government's charge is, look, here's an MP, we didn't feel he, he got a fair hearing, the process is, is at fault, we need to do something about the process. Is there anything to be said for that? I think Not it's always possible to review the process. I can see that that's a necessary thing to do from time to time. The current arrangements have been in place, I think, for about uh, 11 years. There has been plenty of opportunities to review, should we choose to do so, should, government, should Commons uh, choose to do so. Uh, and we would certainly not, and I would certainly not object to that. What I think is very questionable is to change the process in the middle of a case. And a particular case, an individual case. In a particular case. case. Do you think the opposition is right to boycott this? I think having a committee which is led by a member of the government party and which has a majority from one party is a deeply flawed way of addressing standards issues. So I'm not surprised if other parties are not wishing to take part in what would seem to me to be an extraordinarily inappropriate way to look at standards matters. Where would you say that public trust is on these questions? You've got, you've got a lot of evidence um, to your, uh, your committee when you were taking evidence. and. Um, how, how would you describe where it is at the moment, the public mood? On I think that's very difficult to identify on a, in terms of the, over a period of time. Generally speaking, if you ask members of the public whether they think their politicians are trustworthy and doing a great job, they will say no. Um, and if you look historically at the data that there is, 
uh, it, it, there has never been a point where there were very high levels of confidence in the political process, and I suspect that's true if you went back, you know, 100 years. Um, so and, and Britain is not alone in this. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a characteristic of, uh, of the way in which in democracies people sort of see their political kind of um, representatives. Uh, so I think it's very difficult to say we are at a, a, a low point or a much lower point than has ever been the case before. But nevertheless, I mean, the, the key thing from our point of view is that we need to do things to improve the system and to do what we can to ensure that there is an effective and independent uh, standard system in this country which has wide uh, buy-in from those affected by it. And that, that applies to the those in political roles, and it also applies to those in, uh, in official roles. You've described reputation for standards and for honesty, if you like, as absolutely integral to Britain's reputation in the world, which you've spent a great deal of your career dealing with, um, and, and, and to its economic success. And broadly, it seems to me that picture still holds good, that Britain is seen as not a corrupt country. But all, I'm very struck by the way you've, you've described some of it when you were, when you were speaking. Um, as things that have relied a lot on rules and conventions now being tested, those rules and conventions breaking down. Is, is, is that a fair account of, of, of how you see it? I do think that we should not take for granted either the fact that this country has relatively low levels of corruption mm. or our international reputation, because it's easy to say, oh, we've always been, mm. had a good reputation. Well, we've had a good reputation because of decisions that have been made it's not inherent in the nature of the country that we you know, will not be corrupt. We could slip into being a corrupt country, and that's why we need to be vigilant around these issues. And it's also you know, quite possible that we could slip in terms of international perceptions of us. Mm. Uh, I, we noted that uh, one of the international credit rating agencies did downgrade Britain's creditworthiness uh, a couple of years ago because of concerns about governance. So you know, people are looking at us, and we can't assume that our good name will be maintained unless we behave in accordance with that. And indeed, that's one of the very explicit points of a battle, if you like, between Britain and the EU at the moment. But what, what does it mean to uphold um, an international treaty? When you came to the end and some of your recommendations, you were talking about putting on a statutory basis um, several key bodies to do with appointments and standards and so on. Do you think we're now at that kind of point in the country where things that have been done more informally now need to be codified, have, the, 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 have a statutory basis and so on underneath them? I think we are. I think it's been a, it's been a characteristic over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, I mean, from my own career, when I joined MI5, it, it was not operating on a statutory basis. Uh, in due course, that was decided was inadequate and a statutory basis was introduced. And I think that was wholly good for us as an organisation. Uh, and, you know, we have seen the law intruding. Uh, well, intruding is perhaps a sort of a, a judgmental term, but we have seen the law being used in the standards area uh, in a number of uh, innovative ways through the Good Law Project. Uh, and I think you know, the law is being uh, used as a standards tool. That's not necessarily bad, but I think we should be taking the opportunity to use it to create the sort of system that we need to ensure that we are maintaining high, high standards of integrity. How do you mean as being used as a standards tool? Well, for instance, uh, on for the, the uh, bullying allegations around uh, the Home Secretary, that was initially handled as a standards issue, and then it was also brought to court through employment litigation. So the Good Law Project has been looking at, amongst others, has been looking at ways in which the law can be used to uh, address some of these areas which have traditionally not been litigated. Mm. I want to just stay on this point for a moment about reliance on conventions and rules. Um, do you think it served Britain well for some time? I'm, trying, I'm exploring the sense of yeah. whether we are at a point of change. I don't, I mean, we have had a reputation as having good governance in this country. We have had a reputation as having low levels of corruption, and that suggests that we, are, we have been able to operate that uh, system which relies to some extent on a, a shared set of values and beliefs about how one should behave within a democratic system. And you know, that, has, that has served reasonably well. 
The question is whether that continues to serve us as well, given the pressures that there are at present, and also the fact that, you know, one way or another, in a variety of areas of our public life, uh, law and statute have taken a bigger part mm. of the public sphere. Uh, and, you know, that's the, you know, we see this with the judicial review, we see this with litigation in a number of other areas, we see it with the ways in which uh, the human rights legislation and the European Convention on Human Rights requires us to set in law, in a statutory way, issues that previously were handled under the, uh, under the prerogative powers and so on. So I think we, we are in a process which has, is moving and has been moving away from, um, away from convention and towards uh, a more um, established statutory basis. And we were influenced in the, in the course of the in, uh, inquiry by the evidence, for instance, of uh, Peter Riddle, the mm -hmm. former uh, Commissioner for Public Appointments, who felt that the lack of statutory basis for his role did put him at a slight disadvantage in comparison with, for instance, the first Civil Service Commissioner, where the role and the, uh, the, uh, the establishment of that, uh, that particular uh, job is on a statutory basis, and we feel that the importance of public standards means that we need to give those regulators the confidence and the platform of a statutory backing. Mm. And what you describe about this trend, I think, rings true for a lot of people and is it, uh, something we touch on an awful lot of yeah. our work on this. What, what could we see in other countries, um, many of which I mean, other democracies are more legalistic in their... Yeah. Uh, framing and have been for a long time. Well, we did. Uh, we took uh, evidence from a number of other jurisdictions and including some of the devolveds. And of course, mm. we, it's an interesting situation on standards because each of the devolved administrations has its set of uh, standards bodies. And therefore, we can look at broadly similar systems which have slightly different ways of organising themselves. So, for instance, I think, I think it's right to say that in Northern Ireland, uh, the, uh, effectively the advisor on ministerial interest can initiate their own investigations. Uh, but in, uh, the, at the UK level, we can't. So you know, that raises questions. If it can operate within that system, why can't it operate within ours? We don't have to go and adopt somebody else's, uh, okay. but at least can provide us with lessons. We talked to, we talked to the Canadian uh, Ethics Commissioner okay. to see whether there was a model there. Uh, it wasn't actually quite the overarching commission that we wondered whether it might be. It turned out to be quite narrowly cast and not as, not as sort of, um, uh, not the sort of model that some, uh, some parties have been advocating for the future. Um, so I don't think there are any, there's no obvious place which you say, it's, we've got to do it like X or we've got to do it like Y. But I think what it does is demonstrate there are other alternatives which operate perfectly well in systems where the political structure is not wholly dissimilar to ours. Let's pick up one very British uh, code or convention, the Ministerial Code, which you talked about towards the end of your remarks, and you were suggesting really quite uh, radical change to this. Can you just take us into that a bit more? Well, the Ministerial Code you know, emerged from questions of procedure for ministers. Uh, it, it was only published in, you know, relatively recently in terms of the history of cabinet government. Um, and it's a strange creature because it's partly an ethics code and it's partly a sort of Haynes manual to how to run a cabinet. Um, and those are very different things. Uh, and I would have thought that it would make a lot of sense to have the procedural issues put in, you know, in another place. And there are various suggestions that have been made. And to have a clear set of ethical principles that ministers are expected to adhere to, articulated, uh, and that that should be uh, overseen by an advisor, independent advisor, with greater independence to undertake investigations. Now, so it more closely resembles its name, that it is a code for how ministers should behave, and it is a, an as, as opposed code. to the running of the Cabinet Office. Uh, yeah, that, I, think, I think that makes a lot of sense. We are not recommending that the ministerial code should be owned by Parliament or anything of that sort. We, we recognise that the particular... Um, constitutional position of the Prime Minister means that they have to run their government uh, and so we believe that the Ministerial Code should be owned by the Prime Minister but we believe that the policing of it uh, should be undertaken by an independent advisor with the ability to initiate their own investigations. I think the exam an example I would draw on this is the, the, the allegations that were being made in the media 
around the actions of Robert Jenrick in regard to planning issues. Now, I don't know what the facts of that case were. Uh, I, we haven't looked at it. Our committee does not undertake individual casework. But those allegations were never resolved. Mm. So we don't know whether there was malpractice there or whether there wasn't because there was never an investigation because the Prime Minister decided that one was not needed. Mm. Uh, and I, I think that's unsatisfactory because it leaves unresolved uh, allegations that were in the media and I think it would be better to get those resolved one way or the other. This is a really important point, I think, and it's what I was just about to come on to. Um, your, your, um, your organization does not, as you say, look into individual cases. Uh, let me just start then by asking whether you think it should have that power. I don't. I think the regulation of the behavior of uh, whether they're people in political life or in public life or as officials or whatever is best managed with due regard to the particular circumstances. I don't think you can have a single overarching uh, code in great detail which would apply equally to a nurse in Shropshire and to the Foreign Secretary. I, and you know, you've got to have codes of conduct which are appropriate to particular professions. Uh, and that means that I think they need to be regulated within their particular professional area. And this was something which Lord Nolan envisaged when the seven principles of public life were first articulated, that they were not sufficient. They were necessary, but they were not sufficient. We need to you know, work out what those high-level seven principles mean when they meet you know, the health service or you know, the civil service or whatever it is. Um, so I think it's right that individual cases should be addressed within the context of particular professions and, and organisations. So what does that mean uh, um, in the case of a minister or secretary of state? And you've, you, you've, you put the, the, the dilemma very clearly that here are all these allegations around and, and um, ones that if people are interested, they can understand fairly quickly, um, all kinds of charges, then nothing addressed, it's not resolved. Uh, it hangs there for good or ill, you know, against him. What should be the process of, of investigating such things against a minister or? I think they need, the minute, I think, as I've said, I, we believe that the ministerial code needs to be owned by the Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, it is there, as yep. it were, they're the leader of the cabinet uh, and of the government, and therefore they need to be a, set the rules that are appropriate for that. Um, but we believe that the independent advisor on ministerial interest should then have the ability to investigate where there appears to have been a breach. Mm. Uh, at the moment, that is a political decision. Uh, and I think that puts the Prime Minister in an invidious position torn between mm. the political interests and the standards interests. And it would be better if that was turned into an independent judgment by somebody who has not got a political axe to grind. Mm. That report could then be published and the Prime Minister can uh, respond to it as they see fit. Uh, whether that is to say, uh, you know, this is a serious matter and this minister needs to resign or whether there should be an apology or whatever it should. Uh, but I think that the getting the facts clearly established mm. is important in terms of the integrity of the system and that needs to be done on an independent basis. All right, and just before I go to the terrific questions which people have, have, have sent in, um, what would you like the Prime Minister to do now? You've made all these recommendations, uh, many of them. Yeah. Uh, you described yesterday's events as, as, as uh, um, uh, regrettable um, uh, and uh, a step backwards for such things. But you, and you've said that uh, the Prime Minister could act on many of the things that you've recommended right now. Where would you see the priority? Where would you say to him, look, I'd really, really want you to do these things now? Well, we, we've made recommendations as a package. We, are rec we also recognise that there have been other air recommendations in the broad area of standards. Mm. We've had the Boardman Review. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a number of select committee reports in the same area. And I imagine that uh, as we speak, officials will be comparing and drawing those together uh, and deciding what should be recommended. I don't think the Prime Minister is short of advice on standards at the moment from all kinds of parties, as, as, as you say. But um, is there a... T I don't, I'm not pushing you for a top one, yeah. but where you think the priority in all uh, that you've, you, you've done should, should sit? I think I, I don't want to sort of cherry pick our recommendations, which are meant to be a package. Everyone always says that, but it's true in our case as well. Uh, what I would say, the, the key theme in my view is independence. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I think standards 
procedures do not have credibility unless they are independent of those who are being scrutinized. Mm. So increasing the independence of the system mm. seems to me to be critical both to its effective operation and also to its credibility uh, and therefore the, the benefits that it can bring to this country both politically and economically. Well, thanks for that. And let me, um, I'm now gonna pick up some of the really excellent um, questions. I'm gonna start with one from Finn Woolly Gale. And the question is, how can ethical or even legal standards have any meaning juxtaposed against the principle of parliamentary sovereignty? As we've just seen, Parliament has the potential to change any rule MPs find inconvenient. Parliament has the ability to change the rules, but it does not have to change the rules. That is a choice. And it was very clear from the, very, from the, the, the beginning with the Nolan principles, the seven principles of public life that I enunciated in the speech that these are personal responsibilities. Uh, and we recognize that it's, in some ways it's easier to impose a standards system on employees. If you're running a company, you say, well, if you want to work here, these are the rules. And if you don't work like the rules, then you can get out. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's clear and straightforward. And that applies to those who are employed. But politicians are not employees. They are representatives of their uh, constituents. Uh, and that gives them a different status, but it doesn't, in my view, uh, and indeed, uh, you know, the view of uh, successive governments over you know, many years, mean that they can operate with disregard for proper ethical standards. But it is a personal responsibility, and ultimately, you know, Parliament is sovereign and it can do what it thinks is right, but it should do what is right for the country rather than for the uh, personal interests of the members of Parliament. Thank you for that. Right, let me take another, a more optimistic one from Alastair Clark from Newcastle University. And he says, despite events, is there cause for some optimism? Progress in standards have often, has often historically only been made after major abuses. Um, he's suggesting the creation of your organization after the sleaze in the 1990s. Are we at such a moment now? Well, we will see, I hope so. Uh, and, but I think Alistair's entirely right that standards uh, matters tend to, it's, it's a sort of quantum jump from time to time rather than a, 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 a steady gradient. Um, if you look at the changes that were made in the light of the MPs expenses scandal a few years ago, uh, very strong regulation put in place, much irritation by those who were regulated, but nevertheless it has very largely taken away any suggestion of MPs expenses being abused because there is now an independent process. Um, the, the same applies in a number of other areas. So there, we, I hope that this will be that sort of jump off point. I think it's regrettable that we would have to have the, uh, the kind of problems that in my view, you know, we've had over the last 24 hours in order to reach mm. change. But uh, at some point, the political downside of not doing the right thing can become apparent. And that, you know, historically that has happened on a number of occasions. Tories, Fleas in the 90s, vote, blah, blah, blah. People vote out. Yeah, and it, it undermines credibility. Yeah. Right. Got one. I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the questions are not, uh, questioners are not very impressed by um, MPs uh, and, and, the, and government ethics in general. Um, let me take one from George Ferguson, who says, should there not be a prohibition on MPs taking paid jobs as consultants, advisors and lobbyists and on paid speeches and articles? That's an issue which our committee has looked at, not, not, on, not as my time as chairman, but in, in the past. And I think, I think that the view that the committee has taken is that there are some advantages in certain circumstances for MPs to have uh, other roles, and that, if that is done in a way that is not conflict with their principal role as, uh, as members of parliament. Uh, and that is the position the committee has taken, which I think is probably the right one. Uh, and the difficulty of saying you must only do uh, your parliamentary job mm. is, first of all, uh, you then uh, you definitely only have professional politicians mm -hmm. uh, who are only involved in politics. That's arguably not necessarily the best way of getting balanced judgments. Secondly, that it you know those people, for instance, who come in as having previously been doctors or nurses or whatever, would lose their certification because they couldn't do their 
a little bit of, uh, of continuing uh, mm. service and so on. So there are downsides to it. It's not a black and white thing. But the critical thing is that their principal job, and you know, that is what they are elected for, is to be an MP. Mm. Uh, and therefore other matters and other interests should be subordinate to that and should not get in their way of their ability fully and effectively to undertake those responsibilities and do so in a transparent fashion. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, we take one from Graham P. Um, who says, I couldn't agree more with Lord Evans' comments, but the problem is that the voting public don't seem to care very much about ethics and propriety. See the Delta Poll research for your uh, committee. How can the public be persuaded that the ethical standards of politicians and office holders matter? I think the... I think there is a... There is an, it is clear that members of the public do care about standards, but it's not the only thing they care about. And yes. it's a question of at yes. what point does it become the... the the kind of tipping point where they vote according to that. Um, and I think the, the level of outrage, for instance, over MPs' expenses did lead to change because the public were outraged. Um, and uh, that, that actually goes to the question of a free press and effective investigations. Most of the cases that have come to public notice in recent two or three years have come as a result of the media doing their investigative work effectively. And I think, you know, although they are not a formal part of the system, the media are actually, in reality, a very powerful part of the systems, of the standards regime. Um, so, I mean, it is a dilemma, and people vote for a variety of different reasons. Um, and, of course, the closer the political battle, the more people will need to take into account any political damage they take from the... Um, from you know, being seen to be weak on standards. Thanks. And, and um, there's a comment um, saying Lord Evans is very much wrong. The public do care about the ethical behaviour of their politicians. And in fact, as you've said, that's why this person is arguing, it's an anonymous one, uh, why over half the electorate don't vote. Um, they're, um, they're arguing. We well, 75% of those people that we po had polled uh, in the course of this uh, inquiry did care about public standards. So I absolutely recognise that. Yeah. I'll take one from Caroline Slocock, who says, surely it's, it's the Prime Minister who will decide whether to implement your recommendations, and she's arguing that there's a conflict of interest given that his own conduct has been under investigation. Why not some independent committee or indeed head of state? Um, she's suggesting. I'm not sure the Queen needs that problem right at the moment. But, there's, but, there's, but, but the point about, there should, is, should it be the Prime Minister? I don't see how, within a parliamentary democracy, I don't see who it is who will otherwise be the philosopher king who will lay down the rules for the Prime Minister. Uh, if we believe in the sovereignty of Parliament and if we believe in the, the system that we have, uh, then ultimately power rests with Parliament and if you are the Prime Minister because you can, can command a majority in Parliament, then you have those powers. Uh, and I think it's very difficult to envisage who might chair such a body which lays down the rules for the Prime Minister and sits above the democratic process. Uh, it would certainly be a, and it would be a very powerful, a unaccountable and uh, potentially a very undemocratic system. I mean, it sounds a bit like the Iranian system where Parliament is subject is, to, you know... Finally, there is a theocratic figure, there is a comes, theocratic comes, figure comes who comes out and yeah. pronounces right on, or wrong on any aspect yeah. of public life. Perhaps a role for um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And not, <laughs> not a serious suggestion. Not, <laughs> but you've put there, the, I mean, you know, one of the um, you know, consequences of democracy, the yeah. roads do lead back, uh, you put it very clearly. Uh, there's one from James, James Whittle, um, just probing one of, your, one of your recommendations about reform. Uh, why, why not anyway, I think he's saying. Thank you. I think it, unless you know what the overall system is going to be for the appointment, the... Uh, the management of the size and so on of the House of Lords, it's quite difficult to design a committee that one has confidence would be a sustainable model. There are so many questions around the role and functions and makeup of the House of Lords that to design one cog on its own is quite difficult. So we shied away from that, not, not just because it's difficult, but also because we weren't sure that actually it would be a good use of effort when we don't know what the overall shape of the answer should be. Mm, thanks. We've got, we've got some on, on things that um, I'm very glad to have the questions. We've covered them really, one from Alistair Jones on, on the Ministerial Code of Con Conduct, but thank you for that. 
that question. Um, let me take one then from Rob Marsh, which broadens it out a bit in a way we haven't, uh, onto things we haven't really discussed, including local government. And he's asking how much adverse impact that parliamentary weakness on leadership, ethics standards and compliance has on other regulators, local government, business, other institutions such as the police, border force, mm. courts, prisons, faith, community, sport. But he, he's, he's sort of the wider kind yeah. of public um, community of, of public officials and people broadly in public life. I think I, one thing I'd like to say is that you know, I, I have very little doubt. I mean, I feel confident that the la great majority of those in public roles are living out the seven principles to the best of their ability uh, at whatever level we are talking. Uh, and you know, we are not in a situation where most people in public roles or in public life are uh, falling well short. I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, but we just need to make sure that we do our best to make standards yeah. sort of continue to be upheld. Um, I do think it's important that Parliament is seen to be uh, giving leadership on this. Uh, I think some of the scandalous uh, you know, incidents that have been revealed in the investigation into bullying and harassment in both houses um, you know, undermine the credibility of Parliament, and I think it, it has a shadow kind of impact on wider public life, which is not fair. There are problems in other institutions. We did a report two years ago on local government, uh, and there are, pro there are issues around some of the aspects of local government, and we made recommendations on that. I think it is disgraceful that we have not yet had a response from the government on those recommendations, and we are very much wanting to hear what the government have got to say about that, because we made a, it was a very well received in the sector and a very uh, effective report uh, led by Jane Martin on my committee. Mm -hmm. So local government also, there are standards issues that need to be uh, you know, re reviewed. Mm. Um, so this is not just a parliamentary thing, it applies to all yeah. a, a wide variety of different sectors. And the local government questions, I should say, are very much on our mind at the IFG, yeah. um, particular ones. Um, yeah, which uh, we will come back to. Um, so I'm taking that in a way as a, as a um, rejection of a point made by Abed Twali here, who says, <coughs> why do most public servants lack ethics? And what you're saying is that, that that's not your view overall, that this still is basically a country and a system where that, that, that is broadly ethical, but it is under strain. Yeah. I worked in the public sector for 30-something years. The great majority of people that I dealt with, both at officials and uh, politicians, uh, recognised their ethical responsibilities. They acted rightly. The culture was one of ethical responsibility. Uh, and so I absolutely do not believe that most people in public service are, don't recognise their ethical responsibilities. Mm. I think that's far from the truth. And people do not, in general, go into public service in order to feather their own nests or to you know, undertake nefarious activities. They go because they believe they want to serve the public. And in that sense, we are fortunate in this country uh, you know, it's been seen absolutely clearly in the National Health Service, in the military, in the, you know, much of the civil service, etc., etc. So uh, most people in public service, I'm sure, would be completely aligned to the seven principles of public life. Uh, we just need to make sure that we don't slip back from that position and that we are providing leadership uh, at all levels, leadership is not just something for you know, the Prime Minister, it's something which you know, almost anybody in the public sector can provide to ensure that good public standards are maintained and improved and that we move with the times. I mean, we were struck by the fact that some of the evidence we saw from the private sector was quite compelling. You know, mm -hmm. there are, uh, mm -hmm. Some parts of the private sector are now taking these issues really seriously and it's interesting that they are fully aware of the seven principles of public life. And in a way, they're kind of incorporating some of that thinking into their own approach to this. So the seven principles are not just a public sector thing, they're actually, I think, uh, more widely uh, noted and, and followed than you, know, you might expect. 
I've got one following from that from Dr. Claire Foster Gilbert, the director of the Westminster Abbey Institute, and she's asking, and in, in terms, forgive me, uh, quite a long question, um, whether MPs should have some kind of ethics education. I think they should. I think it's. I don't think it, it's quite difficult to force people to take it. Yep. But I think one of, the, one of the things that the Westminster Abbey Institute true of all kinds you know, of education does and you know and provides is an opportunity for people to reflect on their approach to these issues. And, and I know from conversations that I've had that a number of people in public life feel torn between their ethical instincts and the pressures and realities of getting the business done. Uh, but I think it's really important that people do stop and think and reflect and talk together. Because I think, you know, the next report that we are hoping to do will be on some of these um, cultural and educational issues, i.e. You, you need a compliance system. Uh, you need to be able to identify wrongdoing and uh, take action. But actually, the most effective thing that you can do is to help people to think for themselves mm. and to reflect and to discuss how to do the right thing. And I think that is in line with what most people in public service want to do. Mm. So we should give people the space and the opportunity to do that, and you're likely to get better outcomes and avoid problems for the future. I'm good to come. We're coming right to the end of this. Um, and I'm just going to bring together several questions. Um, that really ask about the impact of your organization. There is a craving in these questions, I must say, for um, some kind of, uh, well, as Neil McCann puts it, some oversight body separate from Parliament to define, describe, and adjudicate on ethics in, in public life. There's quite a lot of people expressing a wish for um, an adjudicator uh, in the sky, if you like, um, or at least outside Parliament, and you've made that point very well. But, We've got, we've got one saying, what does the lack of government response to the 2019 report on local government ethical standards tell us um, about that? We've got um, one saying, is, the, is your organization, the CSPL, now simply propping up the illusion of there being a meaningful system of, of safeguards? And we've got one saying, which minister is responsible for providing the government's response to your report? And so there's a, and there are more really trying to get at this question. So you've put out a report, you've put out um, all your recommendations, so what? Well, it, it, is the, it is the kind of nature of the committee that we are, that we are an advisory committee. If you look historically at the recommendations that the committee has made, actually many of them have been adopted and are now well accepted parts mm -hmm. of the standards infrastructure, the existence of the Electoral Commission, albeit there is some pressure on the Electoral Commission with the proposal that there should be a strategic uh, guidance from government for it, which I think looks very dubious in my view and is a risk to the independence of the electoral system. Um, but we are a committee which has had a successful track record over 25 years. Um, equally, there are other recommendations which government has never accepted. We've made recommendations on party funding, for instance, uh, which just couldn't be accepted. We, we also, of course, have a back catalogue of recommendations that we from time to time get out and have another run with. Um, the independence of the full independence of the ministerial advisor, for instance, on uh, the independent advisor on ministerial interests, we first recommended that to the Labour government uh, under uh, Tony Blair or Gordon Brown, and it wasn't accepted. Uh, well, we're still pushing for it, and maybe at some point we'll get it. But it's the nature of the committee that we are and the powers that we have that uh, we can recommend, but we can't go beyond that. But what I would say is that the committee is independent. We are very fortunate in having experienced politicians on the committee from the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, and from the Liberal Democrats. That gives us a connection to the reality of politics, which is extremely valuable. And you know, sometimes we have some quite lengthy and you know, warm, if not heated, discussions over what could be done. Uh, because there's no point in recommending heaven, you know, perfect system which is completely unrealistic mm. in our political system. So having active politicians on the committee has been a massive advantage to us. Uh, but at the end of the day, power rests with those who are elected and not to those who are appointed. Uh, and within our system, that is the right way of doing it. But it does lay a moral responsibility uh, on the political, our political leaders to 
look beyond short-term interests to the overall long-term interests of the country. Thank you very much indeed for that and for all your remarks, but for that bringing us back to the central points raised indeed by yesterday's action. I get lots and lots of points raised there and um, I wish we could have taken in more, more uh, of the comments which were um, excellent and uh, uh, in live time uh, responding to what you were saying. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us. This is the first session of today's conference and later this morning we're going to have a discussion with Lord Pickles, Chris Bryant of the Common Standards Committee and Dame Shirley Pierce about some of the standards watchdogs in government and how well they're working. Then this afternoon we're going to be joined by standards commissioners from Ottawa and Belfast as well as Duncan Hames of Transparency International UK to talk about what the UK government can learn from the rest of the world and the devolved administrations as Lord Evans was mentioning as well. And then the conference is going to close with reflections from Peter Riddle until recently public appointments commissioner on how the public appointments process can be improved. Please do join as many of the events as you can. All the information is on our website. And if you can't watch live, we will have a video and sound recording on, of all these events up on our website within 24 hours. Enjoy the day. Thank you.